Our passage this morning is taken from Acts chapter 16. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to read a chunk of it, verses 25 down through verse 34. And we're continuing in our series on the story of salvation. We're looking at redemptive history, the story of the gospel from the start of the Bible all the way through the end. We started with creation, have gone through the fall, the monarchy, the exodus and exile, the restoration of the kingdom. Last week we were in the kingdom of salvation itself as Jesus announced it and brought it. And this morning we're up to the age of the apostles. But here's what I want you listening for as we read this passage. Do you see the gospel doing this in your world and in your life? Does this, does this equate with your experience? And if not, here's the second question, why not? And young Christians, young theologians, here is the one question I want you listening for this morning. This is the hardest question I think I've ever asked you. If you can answer this question, you can answer what most adults can't answer. Why are Paul and Silas singing? That's all you have to answer. See what you come up with. This is the good news of Jesus from the Acts of the Apostles. ...as Jesus sent them out into the world. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God... ...and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake... ...so that the foundations of the prison where they were housed were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened... ...and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open... ...he drew his sword... And was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, you set your hand upon us from our earliest years, is what we sang earlier. Though we were perverse and rebellious and turned away so often, you have never turned away from us. And once again, we ask you to open our eyes and open our hearts and allow us to see these things for ourselves, perhaps as we've never seen them before. Give light in our darkness, life in our deadness. And do exactly what we have read about occurring in this passage. Break our chains and let them fall. And for all of this, we will be grateful and we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? The age of the apostles is the ministry of Jesus in which he continues to spread his kingdom on earth through servants. The word apostle is a word that means sent out one. So there were 12 whom Jesus chose and sent out with authority. 
He sent them out under his authority to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of salvation and grace in the world. And it was a very challenging world to live and work and minister in. So, let's do some social commentary and world comparison. I often hear people, Christians actually, because we tend to be more complainy than most others. I often hear Christians lament the state of the world, how bad things are, how bad things have gotten. This is just the worst time that's ever been is typically the way the the lament goes. But actually, if you think about it, Christians have been saying that for the last two to three hundred years. Our world, our society, is very close to the world of Jesus and the apostles. I want you to realize this. The world of the 21st century is very close to the world of the first century. And here's why. Jesus lived in a Roman world. Rome owned everything. And Rome established a policy called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The empire was covered with an extensive road system. You could travel nearly anywhere you wanted to go. And because of this road system, and because of the stability that the empire gave, nations and cultures which were formerly suspicious and hostile and separate were brought together. All the cities of the empire were populated by just about every culture imaginable. Cities were incredibly diverse and multicultural hotbeds. That meant that it was a time of unprecedented access. There was this high-speed transit of ideas and beliefs and customs and practices. Any philosophy... Any religion or worldview you wanted or didn't even know was floating around out there was yours to find in the empire. And because of this open access, it was a time of syncretism. You could, you could mix philosophies. You could cross-pollinate worldviews. You could hatch mutations of religions to your heart's content. It was the first instance of globalism, meaning The world shrank. The whole world was at arm's length. It was the first instance of the pluralism that we know in our time. Pluralism means that there are many faith systems and all of them are considered to be legitimate and valid. Now if you put all of that together, that sounds very familiar. It sounds like the world that we live in. We live in a world of relative stability. Relative. Look, I understand that there's a conflict raging in the Middle East, but you can still go vacation in Dubai if you want. It's stable enough that our reality is globalism. Cultures are mixing at an amazing frequency and rate of diffusion. Because, you see, we have better than the Roman highway system. We have the Internet. And every hybrid of thought imaginable, every religious mashup you could suppose and countless more are not only out there, but they're broadcast onto your computer screens and your television screens and into your smartphones. We live in the new era of unprecedented access. 
And that is dangerous in the minds of most American evangelicals. But that's only because we don't know how to read the book of Acts. Look at the success of the gospel in that world. And understand that if our world is similar, strikingly similar, the gospel should have as much a transforming voice in our world. So why doesn't it? Why doesn't the gospel have this kind of effect? Because you are afraid of the world. Plain and simple. Jesus loved it. He sent the apostles into it. And we run from it. Part of the problem is we assume that Jesus is as frightened of our world as we are, but he's not. He came to redeem it, and he died for it, and he rose for it. And secondly, we believe that pluralism is too much for the gospel to handle, but it's not. The gospel is perfect for pluralism, not because the posture of the gospel is, I'm right, you're wrong, sit down and let me prove it to you, Not because the posture of the gospel is, I have the answers and you don't. But because the gospel says, here is the good news. That every philosophy, every worldview, every religion is searching for. Here is the good news to answer every question, every conundrum, every hurt we've suffered and caused. Every bad assumption we've ever held and asked others to take up with us. Here's the story that we have hoped is behind every story. The most beautiful and joyous stories. And even the most tragic and heartbreaking of stories. The story of world-crossing love. The story of a love as big as the universe that has in mind the minuteness of people. The story that aches behind every song, every poem, every film, every symphony, every painting, every sculpture ever produced. The Disney theme park attraction, It's a Small World, started out as an exhibit at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. In its original design, the children of the world were supposed to be dressed in traditional clothing. And they were all supposed to sing their own national anthems. But in the prototype stage of development, and all the children of the world were singing their national anthems over top of one another, it sounded like a noisy mess. So designers went back to the drawing board and two Disney creatives were pulled from the talent pool the Sherman brothers, and they were assigned to write a new song, and they came up with the now infamous song. Here's where it gets really fascinating. The Sherman brothers wrote some puzzling lyrics into the song, which you probably never paid attention to. Now, I know that I often sing to you in sermons. I'm not going to do it this time. I have my pride and my limits. You can sing this song to yourself later today, which you will, by the way, because it's impossible to get out of your head, even at the mere mention of it. But the recited lyrics go like this. It's a world of laughter and a world of tears. It's a world of hopes 
in a world of fears. And if you think about it, that doesn't sound like what the smiling, shining, happy little animatronic children of the world should be singing. After the attraction debuted at the World's Fair, the Sherman brothers claimed that they wrote the song in response to the fear stirred up by the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you have all the children of the world, not the adults, solving the tensions in the world by singing the same song in spite of their differences. And if you remember, by the time you come to the end of the ride, all the children of the world are wearing white. They've overcome their differences. Maybe the children can teach us that we're different, but we're not that different. Listen, it's a great attraction. It makes for compelling propaganda, but it's a terrible worldview because it's not true. Only the gospel tells us truthfully. We're incredibly different in our expressions of humanity. We're incredibly different in reflecting the glory of God. That's why our cultures are different. And at the same time, we are strikingly similar in our brokenness, in our common need for a Savior. We do need the same song, but we'll never come up with one on our own because we're not honest about our differences reflecting God's glory and we're not honest about our commonalities in brokenness and sin. We'll never find the song on our own. And that's why we need the gospel. The gospel gives us the song that fits into any culture because the gospel alone leaves the beauties of particular cultures intact while aggressively undoing the brokennesses and the common sins of cultures. That's why the gospel is so powerful in pluralism. The gospel doesn't attack any culture, and simultaneously it attacks the sin in every culture. It is incredibly important that in the New Testament the gospel is proclaimed to Jews and Gentiles without requiring Jews to become Gentiles or Gentiles to become Jews. And yet, they're to share their commonalities through theology. We need a Savior to solve our crisis of sin. And the Savior we've been given is not a bigot, and He has no prejudice in His heart. And His story fits all of humanity, and that's why missions and evangelism works. And into the pluralistic world, Jesus sent 12 stragglers, armed only with His story, only with His gospel. He sent them out with the theology of sinners joyfully saved by a holy God who put away his offense over sin through the beauties of a Savior. And that theology had radical success. And now he sends you, the descendants of the apostles' work, out into the same pluralistic kind of world with the very same theology. You see the equation? The same world, the same gospel we should have the same result. What we have in Acts chapter 16 are three very different conversions. In Acts 16, there were many baptisms, but there were at least three conversions we know about. Maybe there were more. 
The first to be converted is Lydia. She's a wealthy Asian businesswoman. She's educated. She's independent. She's accomplished. She's a success. She's a modern woman, and she's a God-fearer. She's a Gentile who believes in the Hebrew God. She loves the Hebrew Scriptures and keeps the Jewish observances. And Paul and Silas find her at the river, reading through Torah, saying the prayers. And Paul and Silas say to her, Listen, you don't know it yet, but you're looking for Jesus. The Old Testament Scriptures and all the observances point to Jesus. And Lydia believes and she's converted. The second person to be converted is a slave girl. She's owned by masters and handlers. And she is what the Greek text calls a pythoness. She is possessed by a serpent's spirit. I have no idea what that means, but whatever it is, it's dark. She's inhabited by some spiritual power. She is a clairvoyant and a fortune teller. And you get the stakes of her condition. She makes a lot of money for her owners, and she's doubly imprisoned. She's a slave and the human house of a demon. And she's saved by being exorcised. Paul and Silas say to her, after days of the demon that possesses her has harassed the two apostles, Paul and Silas say to her, We have a greater spiritual power than this. We have the the spirit of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus Christ, demon, come out of her. She might have been economically liberated. Because she's just lost her powers and her ability to generate income and revenue for her owners. Maybe they set her free. We don't know that for certain. But at the very least... She was spiritually set free from her dark possessor. This is almost a diaconal kind of ministry. The kind of ministry our deacons do. The removing of crushing burdens so that the gospel can be enjoyed. This is the mercy of the gospel in deed and action. In justice for the oppressed. And here's the third conversion. Because Paul and Silas ruined this little fortune-telling business, because they took away from the people a very popular spiritism, the crowd turns on them. And Paul and Silas are put on trial in the street. They suffer a mob justice. They were beaten, and then they were handed over to the jailer of the city for safekeeping. Ostensibly until the, the mob can figure out what it wants to do with them next. That's a chilling little detail there. So, this is evangelism. If you want to do evangelism, here it is. All you have to do is tell the diligently, dutifully religious that they're missing the point. And typically they don't take it as well as Lydia, by the way. If you want to do evangelism, all you have to do is face off with demons and their supporters... And then sing in a dungeon like you don't care that you've been beaten and now you're in chains, locked down in stocks. Because the truth of it is, you really don't mind at all. You thought evangelism was working the room, walking in and being charming and impressive and witty and funny and having all the right answers. That's not what evangelism is. Not in Acts 16. Evangelism 
is believing the gospel to be the answer to everything you walk into. I mean everything. And that further means you are afraid of nothing. And that's why we're not evangelists. We are terrified of the world around us. And it's this fearlessness in Paul and Silas that converts the jailer. There is just something intriguing and different in Paul and Silas, and it's compelling for him. The jailer is almost certainly a military man. He served in the Roman army, probably something along the rank of a sergeant. He did a good job. He was a good soldier. He was decorated and honorably discharged, and for his retirement, he was awarded a civil service job. He was made the jailer in the city of Philippi. Now, you can name what he saw in Paul and Silas, whatever you like, calling. They were called to be here by the divine, gracious purposes of Jesus. And so when the jail is broken open, cracked open like an egg, because Jesus had called them here, they don't run. They don't escape. Call it courage, if you like. Call it submission. But if you take all of those things and you put them together, the name for it is faith. What converted Lydia was preaching, hearing. What converted the slave girl was mercy. She was converted through feeling, the feeling of a burden being removed. And the jailer was converted by seeing. Seeing firsthand a transforming faith, seeing in Paul and Silas something that he didn't have. The event that brings the jailer face to face with the gospel is what we call in insurance policies an act of God. It's an event outside of human control for which no one is responsible. It's unpredictable. It's unavoidable. And it's an act that inevitably lets someone off the hook. In other words, in the civil law, it would go this way. Because the jail was split in two and there was no place to house prisoners anymore, the prisoners are off the hook. They don't have to stay. It was a very literal get-out-of-jail-free card. The only person in the narrative who is not off the hook is the jailer. He was on the hook for every last life entrusted to him. So when he was shaken out of bed onto his rumbling floor and he scrambles into the now open-air dungeons with his old legionnaire's hat on sideways, barely having time to pull his tunic over his head, sword in one hand, scabbard in the other, tripping over his dragging belt as he comes in, he thinks surely he's going to have to fall on his sword. You lose the lives entrusted to you. You forfeit your own. That's the penalty for a failed jailer. But Paul calls out to him and stops him. Paul and Silas haven't escaped. And remarkably, they've convinced all the other prisoners not to run off either. Paul and Silas aren't interested in the event. They're interested in the gospel behind the event. Here's what they say. Don't you see, this didn't happen for us. This has happened for all of you. 
God is showing you that he can break you out of your own jail. Look at what he's done here. This building is broken in half right down to the center. God can reach you in your inner prison. The place where you think you are most sealed off. And the jailer falls down before them begging mercy. It should be prisoners falling before jailers. That should tell you something about who plays what role here. Paul and Silas, while incarcerated, are free. And the jailer is the true prisoner. He says it himself. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Which may also mean the other prisoners... The jail is part of the jailer's house. Paul is saying, See, jailer, you are incredibly dutiful, and you still fall fathoms short of what's required. You keep orders like a soldier, but you can't keep them like a savior, meaning to perfection. Duty isn't enough. And see, fellow prisoners, you can be red-handed guilty like criminals and still be forgiven by the red-handed touch of grace from a crucified Savior. Escape doesn't work any better than duty. This is not our prison, Paul and Silas are saying. You all need to understand that we are scot-free even in this jail. Because... Jesus took our beatings of rejection when we said to Him, as He came to earth in flesh, we don't need you for anything. We don't need your righteousness. We can keep the law just fine for ourselves. And we certainly don't need your forgiveness. And Jesus wore our chains, the chains that shackle our hearts in unbelief as He was dragged through the streets. And Jesus was put in our stocks, the stocks of our inability to lift our hearts and make our hearts alive. Our inability to render ourselves unguilty. In fact, it's better than that. Jesus wasn't merely put in our stocks. He was nailed over our stocks to seal them so that they can never be used against us again. And Jesus was locked in the inner prison no one has ever escaped. He was put in the grave and he broke that prison from the inside so nothing can keep us from him. And even our jailers have to fall down and bow before him. Our idols, the things that we love more than anything else in the world, the things that we give ourselves entirely over to because we're convinced that they love us better than anyone, better than anything else. Only they give nothing of what they promise and they take everything. They are jailers because they lock us away and keep us for themselves. Only we weren't meant for them. See these chains? And Paul and Silas pick up a broken set and clank them together. These aren't our chains. 
These are sermons of the Savior's love for us and for you. That's why we can sing in a dungeon with joy beyond circumstance. And we have no reason to run because we have nothing to run from. We are already free from sin and shame and guilt and fear and self-approval by rules and performance and the love of false gods, the false love of false gods who we've designed by our own invention. We've been unprisoned by the Savior's love. So we're back to our original question. Same world, same gospel, but we get vastly different results. Why? Because we live as though our chains had never been broken. We live as though the gospel forgives our chains. The gospel forgives the chains we've gotten ourselves wrapped up in. But it doesn't set us free. We are still the captives of our guilt and shame. Still the prisoners of dominating sins. Still the inmates of all our idols. We act as though the best the gospel can do for us is wink at our chains and say, we'll work it out in the next life, in the next world. So at best, when we present the gospel to others, we're showing ourselves in what? More presentable chains? They're more polished and shiny? They're covered in glitter? But Jesus says, my gospel hates your chains. And my gospel and your chains cannot coexist. And there is no forgiveness without freedom. You can't have the one without the other. Have you not felt the prison-breaking earthquake of my incarnation, righteousness in your flesh, of my cross, forgiveness for your flesh, of my resurrection, newness for your flesh. We are incredibly unattractive people when we tell others of the love of Jesus, if we tell them at all, and if we don't, that's another symptom of our being shackled in unbelief. We are incredibly unattractive when we tell others of the love of Jesus while we are still chained ourselves. What the world around you wants from you is not flat, empty words. What the world around you wants from you is words that ring because there are chains broken and piled up at your feet. But listen to this. The Gospel will never be powerful in your mouth if it isn't powerful in your life. Proclaimed and demonstrated by visible changes in you that you could not have orchestrated or pulled off on your own. No longer an addict. No longer abusive. Like the jailer who takes... Paul and Silas up into his house and washes their wounds, some of which he inflicted upon them. Because he's been forgiven, now he's tender. 
No longer irresponsible, unreliable, no longer unfaithful, no longer selfish, no longer temperamental, angry, raging, no longer superior and arrogant and prideful, no longer self-righteous and self-approving, no longer fearful and hiding, no longer unwise and foolish, acting as if it's cute and charming, no longer a user of people, emotionally, sexually, financially, no longer a worshiper of people, willing to give too much of yourself away instead of being fulfilled in the love of Jesus. The reason the gospel has no effect when it comes from us is it's not the gospel to say leave your chains behind in Jesus name and also in Jesus name if you'd be so kind as to ignore mine in the power of Jesus walk away from your chains and if you'd be so kind pretend that you don't see mine We cannot hold out the transforming love of Jesus to others until we are transformed ourselves. And that's the difference. That was the message in the ministry of the apostles. Paul was a persecutor. Thomas was a doubter. And Peter was a traitor. So listen, if you are a skeptic and you... You're coming to believe in Jesus. You're trying to believe in Jesus. And you're wondering, what do I do next? Just do this. Put yourself in the words of the jailer. What do I have to do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? If you see your chains, just say that. And here's the answer that you'll get. You know your chains... You know those things that you're dying to be free of. You may never have named them or spoken of them before, but you know them. You live with them. You live under them. Let Jesus touch your chains, meaning let him have authority over them, and your heaviest, your strongest chains will fall like a broken pile of iron links. And if you're a disciple, and it's been a long time since you've felt the power of the gospel for yourself or anyone else for that matter. What does Jesus say of you in the past tense? That's the chain-breaking power of the gospel. What were you before he claimed you for himself? Before he set you free for himself? Now, live away from what you were as a prisoner and live toward what you are free in Christ. And then the gospel will be powerful in you and through you. You've heard of John Bunyan, the English preacher who was put in prison in 1660 for insisting on preaching the gospel. Bunyan was a dissenter. He belonged to a party that believed they didn't have to answer to the bishops in the Church of England. And they didn't didn't acknowledge the King of England as the head of the church the way he claimed himself to be. The dissenter said, no, Jesus is the head of the church and we submit to what he says of himself in the gospel. He's our bishop and he is our first and truest king. 
laws were passed against the dissenters. And Bunyan knew he was about to be captured. He got word that the arrest was supposed to take place in the middle of a church meeting, in the middle of worship. So even though Bunyan knew that he would be arrested that morning, he went to preach to his flock anyway. And he stayed late after the worship service concluded because the constable was late. And he wanted to give him full opportunity to make his arrest. They took him to court. He admitted all the charges. He didn't deny a single one. He didn't attack the prosecutor, even though the courtesy wasn't repaid. In the end, Bunyan wouldn't agree to stop preaching Jesus as the satisfaction for needy sinners. And so he was put in Bedford Prison. He was there 12 years. The magistrates continually tried to issue him parole. A number of times they tried to set him free. All he had to do was agree not to preach. And Bunyan's famous answer was always the same. If you release me today, I'll preach tomorrow. He had no pulpit in prison, but he wrote. And he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. A sermon that's outlived him by 325 years. Bunyan surrendered himself law enforcement agents, to a court, and a prosecutor, to a verdict, and a sentence, and a cell, and pains, and mistreatment, and unthinkable discomfort, and lost years, years he could never recover, and he did it joyfully as an act of worship. And the only way you can ever give yourself up like that is if Jesus is more powerful than anything you suffer. The only way you can give yourself up like that is if Jesus has already set you free. And as we grow in Jesus, I hope someday we'll be as dangerously free as that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord Jesus, truly transform us by your gospel. Because we live like Marley's ghost, Scrooge's business partner, moaning under chains and locks of crimes past. And we numb ourselves to the reality of the gospel. That by faith in the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, by life in his spirit, we have no more chains that can hold us. Our idols, our dominating sins, our guilt, they're all easily broken in the strength of our Savior. And if we could live more like that, ah, what the gospel would do in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our city. So we pray. Don't allow us to keep ourselves in the life-changing grace of the gospel anymore. And instead, break us loose and set us free. We may live in the joy and the rest and the peace of Christ, that we may live in the power 
the might and the gracious strength of Christ. And for all of these things, as always, we will not gloat in pride for ourselves, but we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit.